If you would, I'd invite you to turn now with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we'll be starting in verse 1. Now this morning, uh, we're picking up a bit beyond where we last left off, which was at verse 11 a month ago. Uh, And there we saw that Jesus ascended into heaven directly after he had given the disciples their task of being witnesses to the ends of the earth. And after seeing him taken up into the clouds, the disciples return to Jerusalem and they devote themselves to prayer. And during that time, Peter gives a speech saying that Judas, who had betrayed Christ, that in the fulfillment of scriptures, he needed to be replaced. And so they put two men before the Lord who had qualified to be apostles by being with Jesus throughout his whole ministry and witnessing his resurrection. Uh, And so they put before uh, the Lord, Joseph and Matthias, and the Lord chose Matthias. And that is where we pick up this morning. So let me read now from God's holy word, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. The title of this sermon is Power from on High. And those words, perhaps you recognize them, they come from the end of Luke's gospel where Jesus there as well gives to the apostles their central tasks to be his witnesses. And then he says, but stay in the city until you are clothed 
with power from on high. And this is clothing with power that I want us to consider this morning. And actually, there's two Ps for us, which are these, presence and power. Presence and power. Through the Spirit, we are granted God's presence and power. And I think power is really the central thing in our text. But first, we're going to camp out in verses 2 and 3 because they show us a deep and profound truth that's worth our exploring. And that is they show us God's people becoming the very temple of God. So through the Spirit, we are granted God's presence. Now in verse 1, Luke begins by giving us the setting. It's the day of Pentecost, roughly 10 days after Jesus had ascended, 40 days uh, after the day of his resurrection. And the disciples are again together in a house. And this is likely the very same house in which they've been praying together in the upper room. Again, we read of that in Acts 1, and they were likely praying for this very thing to happen. And here at last, just as Jesus had promised, the Holy Spirit comes. And what I want us to see is how the Spirit comes is very significant. In verses 2 and 3 we read, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are these things meant to convey? Why did the Spirit choose to show up in this way? With the sound of hurricane-level winds and with fire-like tongues resting on the disciples. And I think that part of the answer lies in the Old Testament and part of the answer lies in the Gospels. So let's look at the Old Testament. And there, what we see is that when God appeared, he showed up in these mighty forces of nature, and very often in wind and fire. In Ezekiel's vision of God, God comes in a stormy wind, and he appears, Ezekiel writes, like glowing metal in the midst of a fire. Or you can think of the burning bush. You can think of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that led the people out of Egypt. And then that filled and indwelt the tabernacle as the people continued to wander through the wilderness. Yet perhaps the clearest example of this is when God descends on Mount Sinai. And we read of that in Exodus, that the Lord had descended on it in fire. And also that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Throughout the Old Testament, God's appearing in fire conveyed something of his great power and holiness. But downstream from this, it also conveyed that God's people would be destroyed if they entered into his presence unauthorized. Fire is not a harmless element. It's a terrifying element. And time and again in Scripture, we see that fire is the agent of God's judgment So if you asked an Old Testament saint, or even a New Testament saint, would you want the fire of God to descend upon you? They wouldn't understand the question. They'd say, what do you mean? Absolutely not. They'd think it was a rhetorical question. God told Moses at Sinai, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and look and many of them perish. Setting foot on that mountain would have meant death. 
And similarly, if anyone entered into the Holy of Holies, even if it was a priest, right? if they entered in without God's permission, God's wrath would burn against them and destroy them. What we see is that God's fire conveys His holiness, that He is perfectly righteous. And God's Word is clear. Sinners may only enter into His presence by His grace and through a blood sacrifice. And so here at Pentecost, when God the Spirit appears in the midst of His people, and yet they are not destroyed, we have to wonder at this. How are they not consumed? And it appears that what's happening here is that the disciples are actually being protected from the fiery tongues. And the reason I say this is because of what we see in the Gospels. You may remember that John the Baptist compares his baptism with the coming baptism of Jesus. And listen to what he tells the crowds. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And listen to what he says next. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The fire that Jesus baptizes with is clearly a destructive fire, but surprisingly, it doesn't destroy the disciples of Christ. And the key to unlocking this mystery, I think, is found later in Luke in chapter 12. And there again, we see this connection between judgment and fire and baptism. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Here again in one breath, Jesus now speaks of both judgment and baptism. Yet he notes that the baptism which, he must, which must take place is his own. And it's a baptism which greatly distresses him. And that's because it will be a baptism of God's judgment. That's what happened on the cross. Christ bore our sin and He was numbered with the transgressors. All our rebellion and evil was laid on His shoulders. And so the fire of God that consumes the wicked fell on Christ. And now for those who trust in Him, this baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire poses no threat, but only blessing. In Acts 2, the disciples, they're baptized in this fire. God's awesome and holy presence descends on them and they become His temple. And yet, they're protected from the flames. And this is because ultimately they had put on Christ. This is how the New Testament speaks, as if Christ and His very righteousness were our clothing. And this is the wonder of the Gospel. That when God looks on us, He sees us. Yes, but he also sees his son. And with his son, the father sees and has intimate and sweet communion. They dwell together in perfect harmony and friendship without any separation. And if you can believe it, we share in that very same fellowship now by God's Spirit. And it's easy for us to take this for granted. Imagine if we were Old Testament saints. We would have God in our midst because we had the temple. But there would still be a visible and felt difference between us. 
even a clear divide between us and God because God dwelled inside the temple and we dwelled outside. And by this, we would have a constant reminder that our sin kept us from knowing the very presence of God. But now, what a different reality we have in Christ. Now we are never not in the very throne room of God. He dwells in us by His Spirit in all His holiness. And if we are truly His children, not even our sin can drive God away from us. You can sin. You can mess up time and again. But you can't get God to leave you or forsake you. Sure, there are times in prayer when our sense of God's presence is dull and our spiritual senses can grow dim. We can grieve God's Spirit and we can even at times sense God's fatherly displeasure. But even in those times, even when we are experiencing the discipline of God, which is for the moment painful, right? The author of Hebrews says, even then that discipline is characterized by God's commitment to us and his desire for us to flee evil and pursue good. Even when he disciplines us, God doesn't leave us, but he's present with us in his love. And this is one of the mysteries of our salvation that a perfectly just and holy God would not just come alongside us, not would just dwell above us, but would come and dwell in the very midst of his people and in our very bodies. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? In our sorrows, in our fears, in our loneliness, in our sin even, Wherever we are this morning, God has not and will never leave us. He has made His home with us forever. So by the Spirit, we become the temple of God. And God's holiness does not destroy us because we are clothed in Christ and His love. That's the first point. Through the Spirit, we are granted God's presence. The second truth is this. Through the Spirit, we are granted God's power. In verse 4, we read that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the Greek word here for tongues is glossis, or glossa in the singular, but it could just as easily be translated languages. And this becomes clear in what unfolds, that the disciples begin speaking in other tongues, visiting Jews from all over the Roman Empire, Remember, this is on Pentecost. This is an annual feast day in which all the males would come to Jerusalem to worship. And so there's a lot of people there and they're drawn to this noise. And in verse 6 we read, And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. The Jews who were from outside Israel, who had come to live among the other nations, and not only the Jews, but also the proselytes, that is, God fears people who were not Jewish, but came to fear Israel's God, even Cretans and Arabians were told, they all heard and understand what the disciples were saying because the disciples were speaking in their own native languages. And in verse 11, we learn what it is that they were saying. They were declaring the mighty acts of God, which I think is almost certainly referring to the mighty acts that Jesus performed during his life and ministry, and the mighty acts that occurred in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. 
the disciples were filled with power in order to declare this news of God's salvation. And so what we see here is that the Spirit grants power to God's people for the purpose of witness. You may recall the theme verse of Acts, which is uh, 1.8, where Jesus tells the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And already here in the very first minutes of being filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, the disciples are beginning to fulfill their calling as Christ's witnesses. And so Pentecost is not so much about the Spirit granting new life for the first time. That's not the central thing. The Spirit had been renewing God's people ever since the beginning of time. The Spirit was always the one who bestowed spiritual life and friendship with God. Old Testament saints, too, lived with sincere faith and lived lives of obedience just as we do now. And they did so by the Spirit. This day, Pentecost then, is about the Spirit coming in power. And the reason this is so important for us to grasp is because it tells us something about our central calling as believers. If you have God's Spirit inside of you, then you are called to be a witness to Christ. We have this incredible task to join the apostles in witnessing to all peoples of the earth. But we have not been left to our own resources. We have power from on high. As I was thinking about this, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that book came to mind. And many of you will know the story. In that story, there's four children, and they enter the land of Narnia. And the land of Narnia is, is under the rule of this great evil witch, and it's winter, but Aslan is coming, right? And he's coming to bring his kingdom and to restore all things and to bring freedom and joy to this land. And the children join Aslan's side against the great witch. And before they enter into any serious battle, what we see is that they're each given a gift. Peter is given a sword and a shield. Susan is given a bow and a horn. And Lucy is given a little vial of healing juice. And in many epic tales, it seems that the good guys, the main characters, they're given some sort of power, some sort of gift some sort of tool that will enable them to complete their journey, to succeed in their task. And in many ways, that is what the gift of the Spirit here at Pentecost is about. We are called to be witnesses. And often we don't feel adequate for the task, but we are not alone. God empowers us by His Spirit for this purpose. Now this point about power, this leads us into the first part of Peter's speech. First, we get this extraordinary crowd-gathering event, and then Peter, like a news reporter, broadcasting live at the site, he stands up to explain what has just unfolded. He begins by dismantling the allegation that the disciples were drunk with wine. He says it's only 9 a.m., right? He says the third hour of the day, meaning the third hour after dawn. The disciples had hardly had time to get intoxicated. And then he quotes the prophet Joel, saying that Joel had foreseen this very day. Some four to six hundred years prior, Joel had spoken of a great day of deliverance and salvation for God's people. And this is where Peter picks up the prophecy. And the first statement is really a summary statement. 
And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. And the result of this pouring out of God's Spirit on all flesh, that is, all people, is that all people will then engage in prophetic activity. And this is where the emphasis lies. All of God's people, without exception, become prophets. Peter goes on, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. That was often how God spoke to the prophets in the Old Testament, through these dreams and visions. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now what is a prophet? A prophet is someone who declares the words and the works of God. And that's exactly what the disciples are doing. Again, back in verse 11, they are declaring the mighty works of God. They are prophesying. Now, there's an important question here at this point for us, and perhaps you're already asking it. Does Peter mean to say that all Christians, including each one of us, each one of us here in this room, will exercise some sort of prophetic role? And we have to be very clear about this. The answer is an unavoidable yes. Yes, it does. If you have the Spirit of God, you will prophesy. Now before you go and get worried that you hardly know what life holds for you this week, let alone years in advance, rest assured that kind of prophecy foretelling a future event, that is not the kind of prophecy which is primarily in mind here. Yes, that did take place during the apostolic period of the church, but even then, prophecy was primarily about declaring what God had done in Christ. And it's in this sense that believers today should understand their own prophetic role. And to help us get our minds around this, many of you will know of the phrase, the priesthood of all believers. It arose during the Reformation in reaction to the Church of Rome's insistence that it was only the priests who had the right to speak and to teach the Word of God. What the Reformers saw as they searched the Scriptures were passages such as 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And listen to this that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. To say that all believers are empowered to prophesy is to say that we are all empowered to proclaim the excellencies of God. We are all little p prophets and little p priests and little k kings. A royal priesthood, Peter says. In the Old Testament, these were the offices, the prophets and the priests and the kings, These were the ones who were specially anointed by God to fulfill the calling that He had given them. But not everyone in the Old Testament was gifted in this way. Yet what do we see in the New Testament? In 1 John 2, the Apostle writes, You, and he's speaking to all believers there, John writes, You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge And that language is consistent in the New Testament. Multiple times, believers are called anointed. And throughout Scripture, what we see is that when God gives any of His people a task, He always gives them the tools necessary to fulfill that task. If you've ever been in a job in which you 
weren't properly trained for the position, you know just how frustrating it can be. It's no fun spinning your wheels when the guy or the gal next to you is cranking out projects at five times the speed. Thankfully, when God calls us, he promises to equip us. And so perhaps this can become a point of prayer for you if it's not already. If you have no idea what prophetic ministry should look like in your life, ask that God would show it to you. Ask that God would show you who to speak, you, who to, speak to and what that might look like. Parents, it might be that your primary sphere of prophetic ministry is in the home, telling your children about the mighty works of God. Peers, your, your, uh, or students, excuse me, your peers need to hear about Jesus. When I was in high school, there was a group of us guys that had a weekly Bible study, and we would invite non-believing uh, peers of ours to come, and sometimes they did end up coming. Uh, this sort of thing also happens oftentimes in the workplace. I have two buds who are in the military. Uh, One's a pilot and one's a Navy SEAL, and both of them, they're strong believers and they've started Bible studies, and almost no one in their squadrons uh, is a believer, and yet they've invited these guys, and a lot of guys have come, and some of them have met Jesus and been baptized. And so a lot of times it's just about an invitation. People don't join us because we don't ask them to. And it's amazing how often it's uh, in a person's testimony, it's a simple invitation that's the turning point in their lives to getting them on that path to Christ, to a Bible study, to church, or to simply reading the Bible one-on-one. There needs to be a context in which non-believers encounter the Word of God and the Gospel of Christ. And so we should pray for opportunities and that As with the Thessalonians, the word of the Lord would sound forth from us. May God give us all the courage and the power to speak. Now alongside the prophetic ministry of God's people, Joel speaks of a day of judgment. And here briefly we look at these challenging verses, verses 19 and 21, where we read of wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And Joel mentions blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And this sounds very much to us like end-of-the-world sort of stuff. And so some take it that way. This is what will happen at the very end, immediately before Christ returns. Others, however, and I'm in this second camp, see these signs spoken of as signs which will accompany the entirety of the last days, which we are in right now. Peter's citation begins, And in the last days it shall be. Here and elsewhere in the New Testament, It is made clear that the last days are now. They are the days between Jesus' first and second coming. The Apostle John tells us that antichrists are already in the world. And he said, it is the last hour. And so these signs of warning and judgment, they're meant to encourage people toward faith and repentance while there is still time before the very end. And so if that's you, if you have yet to call on Jesus for your salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, and for new life, please do not wait any longer. The gift of salvation, the gift of new life in Christ, and the gift of the Spirit, God freely offers to all. So take hold of that. And here's the great promise. Joel's passage ends this way, And it shall come to pass 
that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? That's why we are here this morning, because we have called upon the name of the Lord, and He has saved us. And we exult in that truth. And now it's our responsibility and it's our great privilege to get to proclaim His excellencies. Let's pray now that God would give us the grace to be a people who do that. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, You know how much we need Your encouragement, Your boldness, Your strength and power. Lord, to indwell us, to fill us. Lord, to motivate us enough to speak Your truth and Your words of life to our neighbors and to our friends, to our families, to, Lord, to strangers. God, we pray that we would not just be a people who receive Your gift, but God, a people who would seek to see others receive it as well. Lord, I pray that for Grace Mount Vernon, I pray that, Lord, for all of our churches in this area and in our presbytery, God, we pray that Your Spirit would move, that more and more might know the salvation in Your Son. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name.